Amen. There's a, a picture that's very special to me that I keep tucked away in my Bible as a bookmarker so that every morning when I open up the scriptures to do my daily Bible reading, there it is right in front of me. And it's this picture. I hope you can see it okay. Um, it's a picture of some sheep that are very sheepishly uh, going across a rickety rope bridge. And I love this picture because there's obviously two things going on in these sheep's minds. Uh, first, absolute fear. They are fearful of having to cross this rickety rope bridge, but also they are experiencing great trust. Apparently, they have great trust in their shepherd who is somewhere behind the camera, or else they would not have even attempted to go across that bridge unless their shepherd had led them uh, ahead and led the way from the front. And it always reminds me of this verse in John 10, 27, when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Isn't this picture such a good depiction of discipleship with Jesus sometimes? Sometimes Jesus leads us to places that we would rather not go. And sometimes his plans for us aren't the plans that we anticipated for ourselves. And that is certainly the case for the passage that we're looking at this morning and the disciples' experience with Jesus. Because Jesus, now we have reached a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. He is determined to lead his disciples to one specific destination. He is determined to get somewhere. Where is it? Take a look at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus is making his way from this point onward in the gospel towards his suffering, towards the cross, to endure all that he was sent to fulfill for our salvation. And he is so determined that uh, Mark says he's walking ahead of them. He is outpacing the disciples in his determination to get to Jerusalem. No distractions, no detours. I am headed there. It is time. And how are the disciples feeling about this? Two things. One, it says they were amazed. They're amazed because they know Jesus has said many times up to this point what will happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. He has had them anticipate that suffering and death is in store for him when they go. They're amazed that he would be so determined to go there knowing what's in store for him. And they are fearful. It says they were afraid. They are beginning to think, oh man, here we go. It's really happening. We're really going there. He's really going to suffer. What might this imply for us? Friends, what do we do when Jesus takes us to places that we would rather not go? What do we do when Jesus' plans are not the plans that we anticipated for ourselves and we're tempted to forsake discipleship with him and choose self-preservation? What do we do? This passage this morning is going to teach us that Jesus died for sin that we might die to self. Jesus died for sin 
that we might die for self. Now, we're going to break that up in two parts as we look at this text together uh, this morning. And first, we're going to look at the fact that this text points us to Jesus died for sin. Jesus died for sin. As he journeys along to Jerusalem, what is he doing with his disciples? If you take a look at verse 32 again, it says that he was preaching the gospel to them. Uh, He was telling them of the good news of what he was about to do in and through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, it would not have sounded like good news to the disciples when they were listening, but we on this side of the cross, we know that what Jesus was explaining was the good news of the gospel. Take a look at what he tells them in verse 33. Verse 33, he tells his disciples, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Do you see how specific Jesus was in what was going to happen to him at Jerusalem? He predicts everything. He says, I'm first going to be delivered over to the Jews, and they're going to condemn me. Then I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. They're going to beat me and kill me. And then after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. Does that not speak to the validity and the trustworthiness of placing our faith in the Lord Jesus and putting our hope in the gospel message. He was able to predict every little detail of what was going to happen to him. I only know of one person in my life who predicted when he was going to die. His name was Reverend Musman. Um, When he was very old, uh, he told his family, I think it was four months, he said, he gathered his family around and he said, you know, in four months, Um, I believe that the Lord is going to take me home. And sure enough, the four-month mark hit, and the Lord took him home to glory. Now, he picked the month, but he couldn't pick the day, he couldn't pick the time, and he couldn't pick the means. But Jesus predicts all of it from the very beginning. Only God could do that. And what was his death for? He tells us the events of what would happen to his death, But why is he dying? Take a look at verse 38. In verse 38, he tells us in his death, he has a cup to drink and a baptism to be baptized with. Now, as he said that to James and John, they would have been conjuring up in their minds the imagery of how God used the word cup in the Old Testament. Uh, If we read the prophetic books in the Old Testament, God refers to the pouring out of his judgment and his wrath upon a people as a cup that must be drank. Jesus is referring to in his death, he is going to drink down a cup of judgment. He is going to take in the wrath of God, the judgment of God, for sin. He is going to be baptized with the Father's wrath for sin. If you take a look at verse 45, in verse 45, he said that he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. He was paying a ransom price. He was paying the debt that we owed for sin 
so that we might be freed from our enslavement to sin, that we might not lo- no longer be under sin's penalty, but be free and saved from sin. See, Christ's suffering and his crucifixion, it was not just historical in nature and that it really did happen in real space and time in our history. It was not just historical in nature, but it was theological in nature. Behind the scenes of the cross, Jesus was accomplishing something. Jesus was fulfilling all the plans for the Messiah that he would accomplish salvation. Plans that were promised and predicted long ago. Now, I told you to to put a bookmark in Isaiah 53. I want us to see how everything that Jesus said he would endure to his disciples uh, was predicted and planned long ago in the Old Testament scriptures when they told us what the Messiah, what the Savior would do. Uh, Isaiah 53 was written 700 to 750 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And it is anticipating and predicting everything that Jesus would endure and why he would endure it. Uh, what would Jesus come to do? First, Isaiah, uh, Jesus tells us in this passage that he would be condemned. Uh, take a look at Isaiah 53, verses 8 and 9. It predicted his condemnation. Uh, in Isaiah 53, 8 and 9, Isaiah writes, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He would suffer the condemnation that he did not deserve, but bearing the condemnation of us. Jesus says to his disciples that he would be mocked and beaten. Take a look at verses 3 and 7 of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, he says, He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Jesus would endure this crucial beating and mocking and he would not seek to back down from it. Jesus told his disciples that he would be killed. Uh, Isaiah 53 verses four through six, take a look at it. It says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Down in verses 11 and 12, it talks about how he would die to bear the iniquity of sin. Uh, Lastly, he tells us that he would rise again from the dead. Take a look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Even his resurrection was predicted and anticipated in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus is telling his disciples as he preaches the gospel to them, to them on the way to Jerusalem, guys, everything is going according to plan. What God had promised and anticipated long ago. And though he knew what was in store for him and the great great burden that would be placed upon him. It's enough, it's enough for us just to think about the horror and the, the, the crucial pain that he would endure through the cross. That is enough to make us think that he would want to turn away, but even more so knowing that he was about to bear the full wrath of God upon himself for the entire sins of the whole world. To think about the horror of that moment, and yet Jesus willingly determinedly, purposefully is leading the guys, outpacing the guys to head towards the agony of Calvary. What took him to this wretched place? What kept him on this road? His love for Adam's cursed race, for every broken soul. I can't get the picture out of my mind this week of verse 32. Jesus from the front with great passion, making a beeline to bear the wrath of God for me. We were talking as a staff on, at staff meeting on Tuesday and we were talking about what a privilege it is to be in ministry, to uh, be faithful to the Lord, to seek to obey his call upon our lives, how we're passionate about the mission of Grace Church to see the lost saved and the saved transformed. But the reality is we as ministry leaders, sometimes we're feeble. Sometimes we're fickle. And our faithfulness only goes so far at times because of our sinful hearts. But Jesus is the one who is more committed than we could ever imagine to seeing our salvation through and to seeing our transformation come complete. See him making his way to the cross, not dragging his feet, but eagerly for you. Jesus died for sin. But there is a response that Jesus wants us to make in light of this great suffering, this great death that he is about to experience on the cross. There is a, a response that he wants for us because Jesus died for sin that we might die to self. He died for sin that we might die to self. The scene shifts in this story as we look at verse 35. In verse 35, James and John, they run to catch up to Jesus and they have a particular favor, a particular request to make of Jesus. What are they gonna ask him? They come to him, verse 35, and they say, teacher, what, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, sneaky. Uh, Jesus' reply here is very wise, I think. He starts out, well, guys, how about we start with you telling me what you want me to do for you? Let's start there before I make any promises. What's their request going to be? Verse 37, they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. 
only the sons of thunder would think to make that request of Jesus. They're walking along, and I'm sure as they're processing everything that Jesus says, and they know they're going to Jerusalem, in the back of their Jewish minds, they're probably thinking to themselves, this is the moment. The Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. He's finally going to reign unopposed. All the enemies are going to be brought down. Hey, hey, brother. Let's go ask Jesus. Let's ask for the top seats in the kingdom. Who knows? Maybe he'll give it to us. One on the right, one on the left. Won't mama be proud of us? And what does Jesus reply? Jesus in verse 38 says, you do not know what you are asking. He helps them to see that what he is about to endure in Jerusalem changes the conversation from their exaltation to their humiliation. He says to them, verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Once again, the sons of thunder, their confidence comes out in verse 39. They say, we are able. Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Not the cup of God's wrath and judgment, but a cup of persecution, a cup of suffering, a cup of hardship for his sake. And of course we know James would be the first martyr of the Christian church, having his head cut off by Herod. John, who would go on to write the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, he would endure being boiled alive and would suffer exile on the distant island of Patmos. A reminder that all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus is saying, guys, there's one guarantee I can make. I can guarantee that you will endure suffering, but I cannot guarantee my right or my left hand position in the kingdom. That is only for whom it has been granted. James and John's thoughts, despite having walked with Jesus all this time and seen from his example that discipleship with Jesus means servanthood, means outward focus, means selflessness. Still, they have this inward, normal uh, set of mindset of selfishness and self-reference, despite all this time of discipleship with Jesus. Each one of us is plagued with a selfishness and a self-reference in, my thought, in, in our thoughts. I was preaching on Friday uh, to the youth at Rollinsville Camp Meeting, and I'd said in my message, I was talking about a, a woman that I had once witnessed to actually at Turkey Hill down the road as I was filling up her gas tank, and she sort of attacked me about, uh, she, she had said that she was, um, she was a homosexual, and uh, she had been mistreated by the church, and she was very angry with Christians, and I told the, the teens, um, I said, in that moment, I had two responsibilities. I had to give this woman grace, and I had to give this woman truth, and I had to give her both. Well, a little a 12-year-old girl came up after the message, and she, she was very nervous. She was very polite. I could tell that she, it was hard for her to ask the question. But she came to me, and she said, um, 
I call myself a Christian, but I identify as, and then she labeled herself as one of the letters in LGBTQ, and she said, I don't understand what was wrong with that woman that you had to tell her that her lifestyle uh, was not approved by God. So I opened up the scriptures and I, I showed her God's desire for sexuality in the scripture. To her credit, this dear girl, no one had ever showed her from the scripture what God's desire is for sexuality. She literally just did not know. She didn't know. And so I laid it out for her, and she uh, said, I've never seen those verses before. And then she said, am I going to go to hell? And I said, listen, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, you will not go to hell. But genuine faith in the Lord Jesus is a faith that causes us to die to self and to start living according to what he has said because his spirit comes to dwell within, gives us all new desires, gives us a whole new framework, a whole new heart to want to obey and to leave the old life of sin apart, away. So she said to me, well, don't you think God would just want us to believe what we want to believe? And I said, you know what, that's a temptation that I face every single day. But the call of Christ is to die to self, to put ourselves in the place of lowliness before him, not in the place of doing our own thing and seeking our own glory. What is Jesus going to do? Because here in verse 41, in verse 41, we discover it's not just a problem that James and John had. It's a problem that all 12 disciples had. Verse 41, when the 10 heard it, Mark says, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were mad that they were trying to one-up the other 10, and they're all saying, what if that's the position that Jesus wants for me? What if I am going to be the one who rises to the top? So Jesus corrects them in verse 42. And what does he say? He gathers them around and he teaches them a crucial lesson. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says the way of the world to, to rise up, to conquer, to be better than all the rest of them, and to throw everyone out of the way in order to rise to the top that is not the way of discipleship. I'm completely opposite of that. With discipleship with me, Jesus says, the way up is the way down. To be exalted is to be brought low. In Matthew 23, when he tells his disciples, uh, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, you are not to be called rabbi. You have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The apostles, when they lived out their ministry, they lived it out as Jesus said, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul said, you want to look at the apostolic ministry, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. 
with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That is what all of us here at Grace Church at Willow Valley are called to do, to do what Don read for us in Philippians 2, to think of others as each other as more significant than ourselves because Christ before us considered us more important than his own self-preservation. And so together, like he did, we lead the way from the front in humility and taking up our cross and putting ourselves in the lowest place so that we might exalt others and empower others and equip others for all that God has planned for them. Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, a good number of hands. If you've not read it, I encourage you to get a copy, read it, get one that you can understand. Um, it's a great book. What John Bunyan is doing in The Pilgrim's Progress is he's making an allegory of the Christian life and the Christian experience. And in part two of his book, Great Heart, who's this great kind of amazing Christian leader, warrior, he's got a sword and he's just really cool is leading Christiana and her kids uh, in their pilgrimage. And in, in part two, he takes them down in what is called the Valley of Humiliation. That's Old English, the Valley of Humility. And as they're making their way down this steep slope, Greatheart keeps saying to, to, to Christiana and her kids, watch your footing, watch your step. What many have slipped on the way down to the Valley of Humility. And then finally, they get down to the bottom and they see a monument. And the monument is made out to all of the Christians who have fought hard-won battles down in the Valley of Humility. And Greatheart has them look around as they're down there. And he says, do you see, this is the most beautiful land of all the places that I have taken you in your pilgrimage. The grass is greenest, the fruit is most lush, because God opposes the proud, but he blesses the humble. And then he has this great quote. John Bunyan writes, he says, it is easier going up than down the hill of humility which can be said of few other hills. How hard it is to make our way down into humility. And oh, how easy it is just to climb ourselves up out of humility into the place of exaltation. What will keep us low before the Lord? What will keep us in the place of servanthood? Remembering what Jesus bore for us, what he did in leading from the front, that he would come, place himself, despite being Lord of all the universe, put himself in the place of service, humble himself, take on the penalty of sin for us, and in exchange, when we understand the depth of what he has done, how can we not but die to self and put our place in the lowest place to be the servants of one another for his name and for his glory? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, whoever would wish to be great, great, 
must be last of all and slave of all. Jesus died for sin that we might die to self. Would you pray with me?